We all have it. You may not be struggling right now, but in the long scheme of life, the majority of us will have something occur in our mental health where we'll go through a low to the point where we need assistance. We need to speak with an expert, a professional, and the majority of people don't do it. Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. So my next guest is a psychologist and a content creator who is crushing the mental health stigma on his podcast as well as just his Instagram and TikTok and social media and and really just focusing on mental health stigma. And I actually started following you because your content is really funny and very relatable because me as a therapist, you know, I've been doing this for a while and some of the stuff I'm listening and I'm watching and I'm like, oh my God, that stuff is so true. And it's it's just so relatable and funny. So, you know, thank oh. you for doing what you're doing and thank you for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Your energy is very infectious. I have to give that to you because I have a lot of guests that come on. And one of the first things I notice with guests is like how their energy is. And you're very just like, yes, this is me. I love it. Gallon <laughs> it's of very infectious. Brew. I just drank right before that. <laughs> I had same. I had my coffee. <laughs> right. So it's where it. are you from? Um, I'm really interested to hear about, you know, I like to get to know my guests and their upbringing. I know you're really open about your struggles and challenges with mental health when you were younger. So tell me about your upbringing and, and where you're from and how you got into this niche. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, just outside Akron, Ohio. Um, and what really got me into being interested in psychology is my brother was diagnosed at a young age uh, with bipolar type one. So you'd have full manic episodes, went in and out of jail and juvenile detention. And also like my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, also, this all was happening when I was growing up. And so long story short, in that space, my dad ended up passing away of brain cancer when I was 19. And then two years after that, my brother died of a drug overdose. But always growing up, you know, I wondered why me and my brother are so different. You know, I grew up in the 90s where mental health was not a thing. Like, I don't know. I know people who are even older than me is like, oh, gosh, yeah, mental health wasn't a thing in the 80s or 70s or 60s. But growing up in the 90s, especially in the Midwest, I didn't know anyone who had ever been to therapy, didn't know anything about mental health. So even when my brother got diagnosed with this because he was in the psychiatric hospital, I had no idea what bipolar meant. Like it wasn't on the news. You know, nowadays we know famous people who have bipolar disorder. So it, it was very hard. And I became very interested in what is wrong with my brother. Like we have the same parents. We have come from the same family. Why are we so different? So that's really what led me into be becoming very interested in psychology and mental health. Yeah, I think you're you're really spot on with that. We have a generation now where we are so open with like Kanye West and all of these celebrities that are actively dealing with manic episodes. And I think unless you have experienced it, unless you know someone or unless you've been in this field, it's really difficult to pinpoint what being bipolar is, especially mm -hmm. with manic episodes, because man, when you are a family member, it is draining. And I, I had a, a, a boyfriend back when um, I was in my 20s who was bipolar, manic episodes. Mm -hmm. And 
even from the clinical standpoint, you know, we we have this like textbook of what mental health is, but it's really different when you, when it's personal, right? Absolutely. It's different when you're actually dealing with somebody that you love who's going through these struggles. It becomes so much more than just what you see in a book or what you see on TV. So I can totally relate and empathize with yeah. how difficult that must have been. And I also worked in the prison system too. So, you know, even seeing some of those struggles that these inmates would go through on a human level. And I think for me, because I'm such an empath, it was very difficult for me to just distinguish like, okay, this is what your diagnosis is because I see the human in everybody. So I know that must have been challenging. So thank you for sharing that. So I know that you really dive deep into mental health stigma and you clearly feel really passionate about that. What do you think is the biggest stigma when it comes to mental health and what we're looking at, especially with our society today. Yeah, and I, I think you'll see sticking with like the generational differences. I still think this is a thing where it's like when you look at Gen Z, especially for me, I make a ton of content for TikTok and Instagram where Gen Z loves to hang out, which I think is awesome. Uh, I think with Gen Z and millennials, we part of our life, if not all their life, mental health has been part of the conversation. But when you talk about baby boomers, when you talk about Gen X, They've lived the majority of their life with mental health still not being a thing. So you clear, I, I feel like you clearly see these differences. Certainly not everyone, but Gen Z has been brought up in an environment where we care about, you know, mentioning anxiety or this is depression or this is bipolar. But then you have this whole other generation where it's just like they halfway through their life are like anxiety. What? Like, why are you using that as an excuse? So again, yes. it's not to create generational wars here, but it's to accept that they have spent the majority of their life without these terms being anything that someone would label or talk about. I, I think, again, I think you clearly see this when you interact with different people from different generations, but I have a lot of faith going forward, especially when you look at where Gen Z is, they openly name them their symptoms. They'll openly talk about their struggles. It gives me a lot of faith of where mental health is going. I agree. And I think it gives me faith not just for the age group, but also mm -hmm. for overcoming gender norms, because mm. we see a lot of, at least when, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I'm 36. And so, Same age. you know, during, oh, perfect. See, yeah. we got some stuff in common. <laughs> so as I was growing up, you know, mental health wasn't part of the discussion, but more so for men. There has always been, and I still think that there still is this stigma that men need to be tough. Mm -hmm. Men shouldn't be weak. They shouldn't be talking about their weaknesses. If you cry, it's not attractive. If you talk about your feelings, it's not masculine. So it's like this toxic masculinity mm -hmm. that I think is getting better, but it's still going on till this day. But I think that this generation is getting better because of social media, because of content creators like yourself who are normalizing and removing the stigma of mental health. So I hope that we're getting better and I think we're heading in the right direction. But why is mental health so important? Why do you think it is an important topic for people to talk about? Yeah, I, I love that you brought up men because that's certainly an area where as content creators, especially we're a close-knit group of people who regularly make mental health content. And so I'm lucky enough, I've met a lot of people. But when you look at who follows us, which, you know, Instagram, YouTube, uh, TikTok will give you these great analytics of who your followers are. When you look at them, 
all of us, it's overwhelmingly women. Overwhelmingly. Like I know my father is like, so 86%. And it's like, same. It, it, this is highlighting still the dynamic, exactly what you said, that men are still put in this box of what does it mean to be a man? And I, I again, I think we're coming a long way or have come a long way in that. But you still readily see it on TikTok, Instagram, and social media of like, this is how a guy is and how you're supposed to be. And it it totally holds people back. But what, this is what's great about people like Kevin Love and pro athletes talking openly about their mental health struggles. Because in some ways, they're sort of the ideal man out there being a pro sports athlete. And they're like, hey, I struggle with my mental health. But, but it's important because we all have it. We all have it. You may not be struggling right now but in the long scheme of life the majority of us will have something occur in our mental health where we'll go through a low to the point where we need assistance we need to speak with an expert a professional and the majority of people don't do it side note did you guys know that i'm not only a therapist but i'm also a professional tarot reader it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. Why do you think that is? I I think a lot of it is access, obviously. I, I definitely think it's one of those things where The more you understand it, the more you learn about it, you can know, hey, the best and fastest way for me to get through this is to speak with a professional. But at the same time, people will often, because physical health is at the forefront, they'll be like, well, I don't even go to the doctor in this country, in the United States, uh, because it's so expensive and I have this ridiculous copay. Unfortunately, behavioral health, mental health is still something that with insurance companies, you often have to fight for it. It's often not 100% covered. And it, it's, again, the, the accessibility of it, in my mind, especially in the United States, is complete trash. Oh, it is. And I've worked in the hospital setting for the majority of my career. And, um, you know, first in the community and now with the VA, and I'm kind of like getting out of that and going Mm -hmm. more my own route. But access to care is difficult. It really is hard. There's a lot of people, you know, depending on their socioeconomic Mm -hmm. status, depending on their education level, even what they've been exposed to as a culture Mm -hmm. can really impact their access to care. I know, like my mom, she... I, I grew up not going to doctors and I like, I look back at that and I'm like, that's insane. That's mm-hmm. insane. I remember at one time, like one time I had like a, a UTI. I think I was like a, I don't know, 12, 13, something like that. Sorry, TMI for everybody. But my mom literally had me pee in a cup and she took that cup to her doctor and pretended like it was hers so she can get me medicine wow. because I had no insurance. And I look back and I'm like, why didn't I have insurance? Was it her Was it her, her work? Was it too expensive? I didn't grow up going to the dentist. I got braces when I was like 22. It wasn't until I got into the military when I enlisted into the Marine Corps mm-hmm. that that's when all of a sudden – I'm getting shot up with all these vaccines. I'm going to the dentist. I'm getting teeth pulled. I'm doing all this stuff. I finally got dental care. And I, I, as a mom, I look at my daughter who's 13. 
And I'm like, oh my God, no, she needs something. She's going to the doctor. Like if she needs to go to the dentist, I've, I made sure that I provided that for her, but there is a lot of generational differences. And I think for my mom, that just wasn't something that was on the forefront. Sure. I mean, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if, if your basic needs are not met, you're not going to be able to meet those other needs on the, on the pyramid. So, you know, if you're struggling to pay your bills or to just provide food into your home, then, you know, maybe dental care and going to that doctor for that annual checkup or to, you know, go see the mental health doctor, Mm -hmm. you know, or just get checked for your anxiety is not going to be on the top of your list. So I love, love, love that you brought that up. So do you feel like some people are predispositioned to certain mental health diagnoses or do you think that it's really based on our environment or, or both? Yeah, it's it's definitely both. I think the interesting thing is you you don't know. <laughs> you might have an idea of what you're biologically predisposed towards because you look at your family. You know, you take that glance at your family tree and you see a little bit of what mom <laughs> has, maybe what dad has, cousin, brother, sister, right. whoever. Um, so you can get ideas for sure. But like I, I use myself as an example. I my whole life was having sort of under the radar OCD symptoms. But it wasn't until my stress had mounted second year of my doctorate program. I'm, for those of you who don't know, when you're in the second year of your doctorate program, that's the first time you start working with clients. So, you know, you might, you have whatever education before that, maybe a bachelor's, maybe a master's, but whatever. This is your second year and they like, you start seeing clients and no one has a damn clue what they're doing. And you're quote unquote, responsible for this person's mental health. I There's no other way I can explain it that you really are just like treading water. But for me, I stopped doing all my self-care. I was working way too much, you know, working at the university. I was doing research and I'm trying to be this therapist. And at, for lack of a better word, I had a mental breakdown where all these OCD symptoms that again were under the radar came to the forefront. I was having dozens of intrusive thoughts per day to the point where I didn't want to leave my house anymore. And I, you know, I'm a doctorate student in psychology. It's like, how could this have happened? You know what I mean? Because it's Mm -hmm. like, there's this bias that gets put on us as mental health professionals that you just know it all. And it's like, we sure as hell don't. We're perfect. We don't, I don't have mental health problems. You don't have mental health problems. None of us do. That's, that's, that's part of the criteria. Right, right. (laughs) It couldn't be more, uh, less true. Right. But it's so for me, it's like, I, you know, I immediately went to therapy because I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, you know, I think I'm going insane. I'm like, do I have schizophrenia? All these things. And I had a great therapist who really was like blunt with me. It's like, Justin, like, don't you think all this criteria matches OCD? And I was just, I was so dismissive. I'm like, I don't have OCD. You know, I'm like 28 years old. I've lived my whole life. OCD should have been there. But then it's like as sessions went on, we start kind of reflecting a bit. It's like all those symptoms were there. I was having occasional intrusive thoughts, occasional compulsions. And it's just the right amount of stress on me where I I had the savior complex. I'm trying to save all my clients, taking full responsibility for everything that's happening in their lives. And I just completely broke down. And then it was just a flood. But I use me as an example of underneath it all, you don't know. And, and COVID is a great example of that. When we took away so many of our regular coping, you know, you're hanging out with your friends, you're going to brunch, you're going here and there before COVID. Then COVID came and a lot of us went into isolation, which again, might have been necessary, but is horrible 
for our mental health as a species. No one does well yes. in isolation as a human being. But then a lot of people during COVID all of a sudden are like, what? I'm, I'm feeling, I think I'm feeling depressed. And, but mm -hmm. it was the right amount of stress, losing your coping strategies. And now all of a sudden you're on your own and you miss your family and you're not leaving your apartment anymore. So the environment, right, during COVID was a great example of you might have had mental health things, a predisposition, as it were, and now the environment hit you in a way that's like, ah, here's that thing called mental health. Oh, that's spot on. We're meant to be in tribes. As human species, we are meant to be with our tribe. So I always, especially when I hear people say like, I don't need no man. I don't, well, okay, that's toxic. We all, we need men. Men need us. We, we need each other. We are okay. meant to be in groups. And mm -hmm. You know, during COVID, my daughter, who is 13, um, and I speak openly about this and she knows that, she really struggled. Mm -hmm. And she was all of a sudden pulled from her tribe during mm -hmm. a time, well, she wasn't 13 at the time, she was 11, 12, going through puberty, mind you, mm -hmm. being torn from her social setting and now having to be at school at home by herself because I worked in a hospital during the height of COVID. So I had to go to work. I could not telework. There was no options for me. So here I am leaving my 11-year-old at home to fend by herself, mm -hmm. to, to get organized, to figure things out. And she went from a straight-A student to failing every single yep. class. I would come home. She would be falling asleep at the computer. And then she was more stressed out because she now has all this work piling up and piling up and piling up. As soon as I sent her back to school, because I had to make a decision to send her back, mm -hmm. her grades picked up Ooh. and she is flourishing. Now she's 13, loving her friends. And, you know, she has her struggles here and there, but her mental health severely, it, it was very, it was a scary time for us. It was the first time that I'm like, this is serious. And the thoughts that she was having and that she came to me with, I'm so blessed that she felt comfortable yeah. to come to me, but when I talked to the school, they said, you know, this is not, she's not the only one. Right. This is happening to a lot of our students. So my point behind this is that you're right. You know, certain situations mm -hmm. and environments really can trigger maybe some of those underlying things that, or challenges that we have maybe otherwise have had great coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But now when we lose some of those coping mechanisms, it becomes more difficult. So I commend you for being so open about that because a lot of people have this, this idea that therapists shouldn't get therapy or don't need therapy when it's really quite the opposite. <laughs> <That> opposite. <laughs> How can you yeah. not? I am always amazed when people aren't actively getting therapy as a therapist. I feel like that's, that's how I've learned the most is by being the client. How do you deal with stress? Because we hear a lot about stress management and a lot of people were like, well, I don't know what to do because what I've been doing isn't working. What do you do for yourself? And what are some of the things that you recommend for your clients who are maybe having difficulties finding healthy coping mechanisms to lessen their stress? Yeah, I'm a big believer on taking this like research scientist mindset of you have to experiment, right? Like you can have a thousand people tell you meditation is it. And you might resist that and never give it a try. Maybe meditation is going to be a big part of your tool belt, as it were, to help you create balance and harmony in your life. Maybe it won't be, but you won't know until you put yourself out there and try different things. For me, I've been like an athlete my whole life. Like I, that, as you commented, like my energy is just naturally high. 
So like when when I'm going through a tough time, my followers know it, my friends know it because I come down, which was probably more in like a normal range. But for me, I <laughs> in a normal range. <laughs> I just run, I just run up. I've been that way since I was a kid. I just I'm always hyperactive, but I am very I'm very stiff and rigid in my body. Like I so like when I'm doing a therapy session, I tend to hold very rigid poses cuz I'm very locked in to listening and whatever. The thing that resets me best, especially in my career thinking about like movements and things that you need to counterbalance what you do all day long, yoga is it. Cuz it's the dead ass opposite. You are moving the body in ways flowing with the breath. Like I am nothing resets me like hot yoga. Nothing. And I I'm a, I was a runner. I still like to lift weights. You know, I don't mind going to a CrossFit gym now and then, but all of those things when I do them, sometimes I feel really good, sometimes I don't feel as good. It doesn't mean it wasn't worth doing. But yoga, and I am not a flexible person, like I said. I'm the person in class that looks like it's still the first time I ever came. And I'm going multiple times a week. <laughs> so it's not if you're good at it. It's what it does for you. And this could be writing. It, it could be dancing. It could be creating music. It literally could be anything. It's how you feel on the other, during, of course, but on the other side of it as well. I've never left a yoga session and not felt like that was exactly what I needed. I love that. And I think you're right. Just experimenting and doing things because I, I think a lot of people think that, okay, if I'm going to practice self-care or do this spiritual work, I have to sit in this meditation pose with my hands like <laughs> this and say, um, you know, the entire time. And that's not necessarily true. Now I am a big advocate for meditation, mm -hmm. both on a spiritual level and on a clinical level. We know the data shows what it does in terms of health benefits and even with anxiety, et cetera. But painting can be Absolutely. meditation. Dancing can be meditation. Mm. Working out can be meditation. I dance. I, I'm a Tahitian dancer. I've been lifting weights for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You know, so those are my meditations. And even though some people may be like, well, lifting weights doesn't sound like it's it's enjoyable, but for me it is, you know, getting those endorphins out, getting that mm -hmm. stress out. And that's something that I can listen to a podcast, I can listen mm -hmm. to music, and that for me is self-care. So, you know, when we talk about stress management, how important is it for self-care? Because I feel like sometimes, especially for people who are people pleasers, who are empaths, who are very highly sensitive, we tend to give so much to everyone around us for the longest time, for years, I was giving, 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 giving as, you know, I, I got into, I'm a LCSW, a social worker. I have always been somebody who helps others. And now here I am, I do a podcast. I am a tarot reader. So people are always coming to me with their questions and their problems, which I love you guys. I don't mind. Keep doing it. But I had to learn how to hold really good boundaries, but most importantly, Believe it or not, as much as I preach this, and I'm very, I try to be very transparent with everybody, um, self care has always been a huge struggle for me. And it wasn't until I made the hard decision to go from full time to part time with my day job because I needed to focus more on my own self care because mm -hmm. I found myself burning out, working not until like, 10 o'clock at night, I wasn't done. And then maybe getting six, seven hours of sleep. And I was doing this for two years and I see the impact that it had on me. But I'm just curious what your take is on self-care. Is it important? Why is it important? And you know, what are some tips that you have for your clients who maybe struggle with self-care? 
Yeah, it's critically important. I mean, your story that you just shared is a perfect representation of it. And I think, you know, different cultures do better with this than others. In America, I think we're terrible at self-care generally. Yes. Like if you tell somebody at your work, just think about this for a second. Tell somebody at your work, hey, I'm, I'm getting ready to go on a vacation. Many of you will be like, ooh, they might be like jealous or there might be a bit of oh, yeah. like, ooh, how are you, are you going to fall behind at work? There's this sense You're so of, lucky. Oh, right, right. But it's not a sense of, well, of course you are. Of course. But in, we know in other cultures, specifically some European cultures, vacation is life. What do you, of course you're going yes. on holiday. Of course you're getting away for a month. But here, like you think about American culture, you're stepping away from a month. How are you going to level up? How, how are you going to get to the top of the, for a month? But again, if you don't look at the cultural context through which these things are created, especially around stress and management and creating balance, as Americans, we, we grind ourselves into burnout better than anybody, better than anybody. So you you got to you got to embrace. I'm just like preached. Take me to church because <laughs> it's so true. But it's especially as a therapist and somebody that did that right. I did that in graduate school. I, I was working constantly. I never worked out. I wasn't doing any yoga. Medit- I did nothing but work all day long and did school all day long to the point where I had a breakdown. But people are getting into these zones all the time where they all of a sudden lose interest in everything in their life. And they're like, what's going on? Like, It's like, well, how much are you working? Uh, the majority of my days is work. And even on my days off, I'm still sending emails or doing this or that. It's like, you can have a big variation in work, how much you love it, how much it fills you up. But all of us need balance. And people use that word all the time, but they don't understand what it means. I think about you and what you just described. And I think about you know you doing the podcast, therapy, all these things, and then dancing. You think how different when you're just in the moment with music, moving your body, but that is balance and counteracts all the other sort of stagnant mental things that you do. So I always want clients to get curious about for your work, for your job, because of course we need to make money in this life. You know, we're not all (laughs) trust fund babies that we just got donated an island from mom or dad. (laughs) But so we're working. But when you think about your work, Think about the specific ways that your work drains you. Like for me, my work is very heady and very emotional. So when I'm out of work, and this is relates to my TikTok videos and stuff that's very humor-based, when I'm out of work, I don't want to have many intellectual conversations. I don't want many deep, heartfelt connections because that I'm already depleted in that area for what I do. I also sit or stand very still. But just think about your job, if you're listening out there, think about how you hold your body, think about the ways it depletes you, and then get curious about different things you do that counter that. Like, you know, you brought up painting before. Painting can be free-flowing, right? It's the same with dance. And maybe we need some of that if you're in a field that is not creative or artistic in any way. I absolutely love your points that you brought up, especially about the cultural differences. I love to travel. And, you know, when I started traveling and I didn't go out of the country for the first time until 2017, but ever since then I've been running and I've been to as many as I can get to. And especially European cultures, it's normal to go to 
somewhere on your lunch break, have a glass or two of wine for maybe two hours and go back to work at your leisure. That is normal society. Not, we are one of the very few societies that have this Monday through Friday, nine to five work grind. You, you don't take any of your leave. You Mm -hmm. don't use your vacation hours. Maybe, maybe you take a vacation once a year. Mm-hmm. I think I remember going on vacation, you know, maybe a few times to Florida and now I live here. So, you know, my idea of a vacation is, you know, I go out of the country. Now I do realize that not everybody's in a position to do that. But I think if we're just, cause it's a, it's a blanket statement, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're just looking at society as a whole, majority of the society tells you that you should be going to work and you shouldn't be taking vacations every other month or every two months. And if you do, people will start to question that like, oh, you're lucky or, oh, how do you afford that? Or where do you find the time? Or how, how do you, if you're a woman, who's going to watch your kids? Mm. Oh, your kids travel with you. How do you manage that? Whereas maybe, you know, we're not even getting into that conversation, but if it was a man, you wouldn't be asked those questions. So there's all of these things, you know, in terms of societal views that really affect the stigma of self-care. So thank you for bringing that up because I think that that's something that we don't often think about. I actually saw a post yesterday and I, and I really want to get your thoughts on this. I thought this was really interesting. So the post said, are we living in a traumatic event after traumatic event, or are we just the first generation with worldwide communication and social media that life has actually been this fucking horrific? (laughs) I thought that was really interesting because, you know, when we're talking about generational differences and now we're in this world of social media, has life always been this fucked up? And this traumatic, or are we just seeing this for the first time? And I'm really curious as as to your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, and I really love history. It's not that I'm the greatest history buff, but I love learning about it because there's just a way that you get so consumed, especially by technology nowadays, of what's happening in the now that you forget that other generations have been through a lot of crap. Um, and I historically, I think there's been awful things that have happened like back to back, but I totally agree with that latter point of we now more than ever, like even if you think about a hundred years ago, there could be something awful happening on the, on just the other side of the country, but you're, you're maybe you read it in the paper at most. I don't know. Maybe it was on the radio back then. Now I'm really trying to think when the radio came out, but regardless, it wasn't in your face all the time. But just, of course, you can think about Ukraine and Russia right now. You could spend every minute of your day-to-day tuned into the war. Every minute. And get new videos every minute. And get new images and new political commentary on it. That we have not adapted to. Like, as a species, we are not used to being inundated with this level of trauma. And so... Where I feel like this is, we're totally getting to the double-edged sword of technology, news, social media, of like, it's great to be informed. We're the most intelligent we've ever been as a species, right? We're the most connected. And we're also the most inundated with imagery and images that, again, we're not adapt to being flooded with. So I, I definitely agree with that latter point that, and to me, it does go back to It's great to be involved. It's great to be in the know, but you cannot spend your days just absorbing news all day long when the news is created to keep your attention. 
They want yes. you to stay on their channel, their app, whatever it is. That's how they make money and they do make money. So if you can accept that, they are going to continuously show what keeps viewers. That does not mean it's good for you or your mental health. 100%. And same thing with social media. And I've talked yeah. about this before. It's designed yeah. to keep you online. When you are scrolling or when you're watching the news or when you're binging on Netflix, you are releasing dopamine. Mm -hmm. You are getting all of these reward systems of like, good job, keep doing it, keep going. And if they can keep you online, it's designed to keep you online. They are making money. And you have to understand that that is the whole point of it. Yeah. Whether it's ads or whatever it is that they're doing to make money, they want you to stay online. And I agree with you that social media has really it's a double-edged sword. It's really made us connected, mm -hmm. but I also feel like we're so disconnected. But if you look at history and I, just like you, I love history. I'm not by any means a, um, a history expert, but I am a really big nerd, especially when it comes to like 15th and 16th century history. So even if you look back to like 16th century, sorry, I'm going to bore some of you right now. But when you look at the Tudor dynasty and all the, the drama, the religious drama, when the Protestants separated from the Catholics and that was a huge turn in history. There has been centuries of trauma and war and religious turmoil and so many things if you look back at our history. So I, I think that it can very much look like our generation is just full of just trauma more than it ever has been in the history of our species. But I think furthermore that it's really just because of social media that it has made it more so look like it's it, and, and I think too, we are the main actors in our in our own movies, right. right? So it may feel like we're dealing with the worst, but I mean, if you were living through the plague, that may have been a lot worse than COVID at the time, you know? Oh, so right, right. I think it can be big perspectives. Speaking of generational trauma, I noticed with my own history and my own family the generational trauma that just got passed down and passed down. Mm -hmm. it, how does that affect somebody? And especially, you know, the the generation of today, because my my mother, her parents were immigrants. My mother was half Brazilian, half Palestinian. And so all of that trauma of language barriers, cultural differences, racism, war got passed down to her. And then her generational traumas, relationship issues, language barriers, lower socioeconomic status got passed down to me. And I know for me, I'm like, okay, well, what does this present like with me? Dysfunctional relationships, mm. high empath. Um, I'm overly sensitive to body language, tones of voice, um, which can sometimes be in my benefit, but oftentimes mm -hmm. in my past with relationships, it hasn't. And I had to stop here with me. Like, I'm not going to present this with my child or to my daughter. How do you think generational trauma impacts us as a generation or maybe just even with some of your clients that you've seen? It has a massive impact to the point where we've noted that it changes DNA. So if it's getting down to that level and you might be like, well, why would that happen? As a species, we are designed first and foremost to survive. So when you as a person go through something traumatic, you are making changes at the cellular level that then, of course, you go and procreate. You're passing that along. 
So this is like when you think about it impacts to that level, we haven't even started talking about the things you're told, the things, you know, are verbally communicated to you, you know, of like, you don't go over there, you don't talk to these kinds of people, you you don't work this kind of job, you know, all of us can easily kind of pull these messages that you were told as a kid, or even a teenager, or even now, like you go talk to your parents or grandparents, they'll tell you specific messages that they've used throughout their life to survive. So again, you're looking at it from a biological level, it's changing DNA. And then you're looking at it from, again, a connection, interpersonal level, it's all the messages you're receiving. And so now that we know this information, right, previous generations haven't known this of like, wow, trauma, generational trauma impacts you at the cellular level like this. Now, I love that you're saying like, I'm going to do differently. And it's like, this doesn't mean that we can fully protect our children. But what it does mean is you can have insight and reflection on why am I the way that I am? And how do certain behaviors like the ones you just named, how do they benefit me? But how will they also hold me back when I become reactive, when I become hypervigilant, when I, again, have my moments where I'm not regulated myself and I can aggressively lean in or some people do the opposite. They aggressively avoid. So you can just think of a fight in a relationship. Some of us lean in hard and have to be right and want to control the situation. Other people are like deuces at the first sign of a fight onto the next one. But these little patterns, this is why therapy is so great. Because you can, with an expert, learn what are the messages I was taught as a kid? What are the ways that I've responded to different levels of conflict, maybe even trauma in my life? And how may I, especially if you have kids, how may I be passing this off or modeling this for my kid? You mentioned something about like really understanding how you're reacting and maybe even how it's affecting or triggering the nervous system, I think is another one too, because a lot of us don't think about or don't understand how the nervous system really affects us. Do you feel like mental health or even trauma can affect the nervous system? How does that present in somebody? So for example, like if someone's listening and they're like, okay, well, what does that mean? How do I know if my nervous system is being activated and then what do I do about it? Uh, Yeah. And and the perfect example is to think about like, you know, a fight in a relationship. So what could happen is somebody says something to you and if you think about your own life when a partner or boyfriend girlfriend whoever said something to you and you notice yourself becoming elevated this is your nervous system specifically your sympathetic nervous system the fight flight freeze system turning on and it's detecting that something is a threat is it necessarily a threat maybe maybe not based on again your history you might feel like, oh, this person just said something and I interpret it as, again, they're they're getting ready to leave me. They don't want to be with me anymore. They just commented on somebody else's you know, dress. We're out at a bar or something. And now I'm like, why would you say that? Why are you looking at them? And again, we feel threatened. They're going to leave me now. They just looked at this other person, looked at what they were wearing, and now they're going to leave me. But when you're in this state, what happens is your heart rate picks up right? You might notice tension start in the body. You are gearing up. Adrenaline gets released in the system. You're gearing up for a fight. Or again, you're gearing up to get the hell out of there in flight. But these reactions, so a lot of people, again, stereotypically be like, oh, they lost it on me. And again, I don't like using this word, but they're like, oh, they went crazy. But what that actually means is they're having a physiological elevation, a sympathetic reaction 
to something in the environment. And again, when we can start recognizing that, anytime you notice yourself getting elevated, it may not be the truth in what you're experiencing. It could be, but this is why, and people will roll their eyes when they hear messages like this, this is why being more regulated and balanced actually matters, especially when you're talking about interpersonal conflict, because your reaction to something might not be your truth. You may just react because, again, a, you, a perceived threat in the environment. But when you actually notice yourself, you're like, hmm, I'm starting to speak a little quicker here. I'm starting to feel my mind racing. My heart's beating a little faster. This is the perfect time to step away. This is the perfect time to go to the bathroom, take a breath, reset, go for a little walk because we all have this happen. Your immediate reaction to something and when you come back and you're more balanced, your view of it and interpretation of it is completely different. You worded that excellently. I think that especially in relationships, when we're talking about attachment styles, mm. even with anxious attachment and avoidance and, you know, us anxious, we love our avoidance. I, <laughs> I've gotten much better at it, but we tend to attract each other. And um, I think, you know, for me, even personally, I had to recognize when my nervous system was mm. being activated. Mm. And now as a mature, more secure styled person, I have been able to regulate more. But when I was younger, let me tell you ooh, the stuff that the stories that I could say, the paragraphs I've written, the things that I've done that I am by any means not <laughs> proud of being in relationships and, and you know, the, the reactions I've had to certain things in my 20s. But that is because I had a nervous system that was unregulated. Mm -hmm. I did not know how to manage it. I had poor coping skills. And all I knew was like, this is what I'm feeling. Mm. And I think you're going to do this, this, and that. And all I knew was reaction. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how to regulate, how to sit with my emotions, how to deal with my emotions, and how to process my emotions. How important is that for relationships? And, and you, I know you touched on that a little bit, but when you're dealing with a relationship with people who have like maybe two different attachment styles and maybe the other person won't let you leave or maybe the other person is avoidant and they don't want to deal with it. Is that a time when you say, you know what, this is not compatibility or are there ways that you maybe can regulate your own emotions and work with the other person? Because relationships are hard. Oh my God. They're so hard. They're so hard. I think it's the hardest thing that we do um, because you're, you're having two people who are constantly growing and changing, trying to do life together over the long term. It's difficult. I mean, there's a lot of judgment out there <laughs> why, again, the majority of relationships don't work out and end up breaking up. But like when you really think about what you're trying to do, it's, it's a difficult process. Not impossible, but a difficult one. But I think I just shared something in my story that was hilarious the other day, which is uh, this guy saying, he's like, if you're, again, this is his words, but it was so funny. He's like, if you're a straight man out there, he's like, let me tell you what women actually want. What they find is so hot. Okay, get ready. This is what they love. Get your ass in therapy. <laughs> and Oh, that's sexy. Oh. It is a, that is a sexy thing. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If I meet a man who's done the work, that's that is that is so attractive. I don't yeah. care about your money. Like, of course, I want you to be financially sure. stable. But if you've done the work spiritually and mentally, mm. that is a sexy, sexy trait. I agree. But the, it, it, it's <laughs> such a truth. I was laughing so hard. But it's like, because behind that, you have someone who has looked at themselves and so when you yes. talk about like, even as you're mentioning for you, it's like you've done the work to understand 
where is this reaction coming for, from for me? Mm-hmm. It's like you have to look inward. Yes, we love therapy. Again, we'd love to see everyone in therapy. And again, we know the different hurdles that come that way. But even in reflecting, self-help books, self-help workbooks, listening to the podcast like this one, there's a lot of work you can do to get to know yourself, understand your attachment style, understand the messages that you got through your culture growing up. Like all these things in the additive, we become less reactive because you'll be like, in a moment, you'll be like, ooh, I just saw you look at this you know, other person in this bar club, whatever. And I was used to watching my dad always be a jealous person and confront my mom. That's what I learned from my dad is that, you know, I'm making this up. This actually isn't my dad, but, (laughs) but for example, you're like, I learned that in my home. And so now I feel like as a man that I must control you in a way that my dad tried to control my mom. But it's like you, again, without the reflection part, we are just reactive apes. We, we, that's, we're just reactive all the time to our emotional wave. But we have this ability, especially in our frontal lobe, to pause and think yes. about where is this coming from? And again, the more regulated we are, the more balanced we are, the easier that is. But you still got to do the work, as you said. Yeah. And, you know, the the great thing about being human is the human brain is is quite exceptional. So even if there's things that you've never learned, we have something called neuroplasticity. Absolutely. The brain is able to rewire itself right. and relearn these things. And, you know, when you do something, it, it you hear about like you do something for 30 days, it becomes habitual, becomes a habit, right? So you have to put in the same kind of work to unlearn some of these habits that maybe you've had for your entire life or maybe have witnessed and then have adapted as you have become an adult. So you're absolutely right. It, it And relationships are, are so difficult, but I think that when you have self-awareness mm-hmm. and self-insight, it changes the game because you know, for me, you know, even going through, I I was married, I've been through, you know, some really toxic situations. And the key thing that I've seen with everybody that I dated in the past, and even with myself up until this point is the lack of Mm self-awareness or self-insight in terms of, okay, what lessons do I need to learn in order to not make the same mistake, not with just that person, but with myself, I had to take a turn with me I can't control other people, right? But if I leave a situation, like even with dating and the the person turns out to be a complete asshole, which happens, I have to ask myself, okay, what what did I learn from that situation so that I can do something different in the future? And it's that self-awareness and that self-insight, which I think is a key difference. You know, and I always tell people, you're still human. Like if you meet somebody who turns out to be an asshole, sometimes people are really good liars. You have a lot of narcissists out there. You have a lot of people who, you know, can be very selfish or just are human and want to put their best foot forward and maybe are not being truthful from the Mm -hmm. beginning. You, you have to know that that's going to happen and that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. But the key is what is the lesson there for you to learn? Because there's always something to learn out of a situation. And that's what you take and that's what you grow and you bring to your future relationships. If I didn't learn any of the shit that I learned from my past relationships, from my failed marriage, from the narcissist that I was with, the bipolar guy that I was with, mm-hmm. I've been with some gems. Um I wouldn't have turned into the woman that I am today at 36 if I would have just been like, oh, it is what it is, Mm -hmm. nothing for me to learn, just keep moving. I probably would have found myself in those same situations today in those same toxic cycles, but I had to take myself out of the situation and ask, what do I need to do differently 
or what do I need to do to grow? And I think that's the key thing is self-insight. But you're right. Self-insight is extremely attractive. I don't mean offense by this. And maybe you'll agree. Maybe you don't. And maybe some of you listening will shake your head and I might get some controversy on this. But I feel like not a lot of men have a lot of self-awareness or insight or not are not willing to. I don't know. What do you think about that? I, well, I, and again, I think that goes back to in the like mass toxic masculine mindset of that the rigidity, the stiffness, the strength of everything, like you aren't dynamic, moldable in changing, which again, holds you back. It's like in face mm-hmm. of something, you're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to be stern. You're supposed to be confident. That is a lot of those things can be helpful in certain situations. But when you think about everything that you just named, again, one of the biggest, brightest red flags, you go on a date, and I've heard this before, is when someone, uh, you ask them about their previous relationships and they go, oh yeah, my ex was crazy. Or yeah, my ex was super toxic. I want you to know that is the brightest red flag that could ever flap in your face. Because what they just (laughs) said to you is, I did not reflect at all. It is all the other person's fault. And again, I hear people say this all the time. Even friends of mine will say stuff like this. I'm like, you didn't do the work, dude. You're not thinking about what about me? How did I stonewall? How did I contribute? How did I hold back? Again, you don't have to take full responsibility for what they did. What they did is what they did. But you have to think about how you contributed to this. And there is very few situations where someone didn't contribute at all. I don't want to say never, but very few. It's a two-person dynamic. And men often, men often love to be like, oh, she was crazy. She was crazy. Mm-hmm. She was nuts. And again, what all you said, dude, was I'm not willing to look at myself to see how I fell short in this and, or how I contributed. Yeah. And I'm not by any means saying that there are not women out there who do the same. But like you said earlier, and and like I've noticed as well, a lot of my population for growth and mental health is women. And it's not to say that men are not capable, that men are not wanting. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's just a big social stigma. And even based on that generation before us that taught men Mm -hmm. or boys at the time that this is not something you do. I hope that with this next generation, with people our age who are now having children, I have a girl, but I'm still trying to teach her those things, that I do hope that this next generation of men gets a little bit more involved in mental health and self-awareness and self-insight. I hate to group men are the problem, women are the problem, because there there's a lot of problems on both ends. Oh, there's a sure. lot of challenges. I hate saying the word problems. I'm going to use the word challenges. Challenge. There's challenges on both ends, yeah. even with dating. You know, I think that you know we as women too. Well, I'm independent. I don't need no man, and blah blah blah. Well, you know, okay, that's that's toxic in my opinion. Mm-hmm. We need men. They need us. And you know, there's a lot of these generational stigmas. And so I think that we're growing as a society. I hope that we are going to continue to be open and honest and have these conversations. For those that are listening who maybe say, you know, that's great, get a therapist, 
I would love to, I can't afford it. Mm. It's not something I have access to. So what would you say for those that maybe can't afford a therapist, don't have access to a therapist, what are some things that they can do to actively work on themselves or to actively decrease their stress, decrease their anxiety? Where's a good starting point? Because I like to give my clients active protocols that they can implement in their own time. And if they want more of a structured thing, there are so many mental health apps out there. This is the positive of the technology that we live in. And for less than a single therapy session, for a lot of these apps, you unlock all the content they have. And so, of course, I'm, I'm partnered with one called Dive Through, but there's Calm, there's Headspace. There's so many different great apps and workbooks. Workbooks are like 20 bucks. And these are can get specific. You know, maybe you struggle with anxiety. Maybe you're working through trauma. Maybe you struggle with depression. So, again, that specificity, again, you might have to know and maybe you don't know that. But when you do know that. Again, for less than, for like $20 for a lot of things, you can have something written by a professional based on research that can guide you through. But if we're not talking about mental health apps or we're talking about workbooks that are a plenty out there, the, the simple practice of taking daily pause and reflecting in an emotional way, this could be journaling, this could be meditation, this could be taking an evening walk, but in thinking and reflecting about your emotional life, you raise your emotional intelligence. Like I, I love journaling. Journaling is well documented to help with a number of mental health difficulties, but it also allows you to not be sort of robotically numb, just moving through your days. When For me especially, when I start writing, it opens me up to noticing the things I'm going through in a new way that it's easy for me at the end of the day just to turn on Netflix and binge watch something and be kind of mindless. Sometimes that's what we need. But does that really help us grow? No. Does it help you look at yourself, look at your life? Not really. Maybe if it's like an awesome documentary or something, but not typically, right? But journaling this reflective exercise, which is a process, is an awesome way to start Again, raising your emotional IQ and understanding what you're experiencing on a daily basis. Raising your emotional IQ. I love that. It's very accurate. When I started doing my self-work, um, just taking time to ground, taking mm -hmm. time to express my gratitude in the morning, to write my gratitude down, what am I grateful for, to even if it's five minutes of journaling, I noticed when I started listening to more podcasts, when I started focusing on my self-growth, what I learned about myself and just the growth that I have had over the last even year has been absolutely amazing. When I get to do these types of podcasts with people like you, I'm learning. So I think technology is a great way. This is where the positive sides of technology come in, like you said, where you can listen to a podcast just like this in a therapy session. You would probably spend two, $300 mm -hmm. for this hour. Right. You're getting this entire hour for free and you're listening to experts in their niche to give you solid advice to what they usually charge people. Mm -hmm. So that's the beauty of technology. Like for me, when I get to talk to people like you, that's why I love doing this podcast because I can literally listen to you and learn for stuff that maybe I would pay in a college classroom. Maybe mm -hmm. I would pay two, three, four, four, five hundred dollars in a therapy session. And I've learned and grown so much by doing this. Um, journaling for me has been 
a huge, huge impact to just express my gratitude. And I know sometimes those of us, well, I'm busy and da da da. Well, do you take five, 10 minutes and are you scrolling on Instagram or Facebook? Right. I get, bet you you are. I guarantee you. Don't look at your phone in the morning. Put it to the side. Don't pick up your phone until 10 a.m. Do what you need to do for yourself first because otherwise you're just inviting all of those people into your energy space because that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Social media, all of that negativity, you wouldn't invite 50 people into your bedroom when you wake up. Don't do it when you open your phone. So I love that you mentioned journaling. Now for you, I know you talked about your struggles with mental health and some of your struggles that you dealt with within your own personal journey with your family. But if you could look back and give your younger self any piece of advice, what would you say to yourself when you were younger? And this is a, I think this younger advice, I need to hear it right now too. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny how, and I say this to clients all the time, like our struggles tend to remain the same throughout life. And it's not to tell someone you're not going to get better but if you're struggling with anxiety when you're 18, odds are you, you're going to have a flavor of it when you're 36. But it can be more manageable. You can understand when it rises, some of the factors that make it rise. But I, I think it's important from a general mental health standpoint to understand it's like, especially because this takes away judgment or guilt, that often the things we're struggling with, we're going to struggle with throughout life. But again, it can be way more manageable than it is in the beginning. But what I tell my younger self is to understand things are always changing and to have patience. I, I It's something I still struggle with now. I, I'm so high energy. I get so leaned forward. I'm interested in stress and burnout because I burn myself the hell out. Like I do it because I get so excited. I'm easily excitable and will say yes to so many things. And before I know it, like it's been weeks on end and I'm super irritable. I'm not sleeping at night. Haven't seen my friends. Why haven't I been going to yoga as much? It's like this this is the cycle I get myself caught in. But unlike, you know, my 20-year-old self, now at 36, it's like I'll have like a few new opportunities come my way. And I'm like, nope, I can't do it Monday night. I'm going to yoga. I would have never done that in my 20s. I'd be like, oh, yes, an interview for sure. Let me put that right here at 7 o'clock where I normally go to yoga. And now I'm like, no way. Now it's yoga time. We can meet another day. But that's when you learn for yourself. I know the consequences of me not doing that. I also, as you mentioned, I know the consequences of me immediately in the morning waking up and scrolling social media. It never helps me start my day. I never feel better about myself. I never feel focused versus I go outside of my porch. I live in South Florida. I got a million plants. I'm a plant guy. When I'm sitting outside of my porch, slowly sipping my coffee, just sitting out there, I feel grounded. I feel in the moment. I feel ready for my day. That's how I like to wake Same. up. But you need to discover that for yourself. And even when you go through lows or difficult times, it's to get curious about it and know everything's changing. There's something to be gained from this. There is a lesson to be learned. That's great advice. And and I am very humbled and, and want to thank you for dropping all these gems on this episode today. This I think this is definitely one of my my top favorite episodes. Oh wow. This was great. I think you're yeah, you're you're so insightful. And I think that there's gonna be so many people, just including myself, I'm gonna have to go back and re-listen to this once I drop the episode. But I think so many people are gonna get so much out of this. Keep doing what you're doing. I love all the content and just you're destigmatizing mental health and it's something that's needed, but you do it in a way that's so relatable and you're so good at what you do. Um, and we need more people that are just, this is me 
don't worry about it. We all go through this and you're not alone and just the validation. So thank you for doing what you do. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege. Keep rocking it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And until the next time, see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.